morning, everyone. Um, I'm just going to get right into it. Have you ever, I want to ask you a question. So have you ever looked back on a period of your life and you can just see God's hand so clearly in every moment and you don't see it in the moment, but when you look back, it's like, wow, God was there and he opened doors and he closed doors and he put you in places where you never would have put yourself personally. But when you look back, you're in a far better place than if you were in control. Um, well, is there anyone like that <laughs> today's experience? Awesome. <laughs> Five of us. Cool. Um, well, there's a book in the Bible that's exactly like that, and that book is in the Old Testament. It is Esther, and it's full to the brim with evidence of just God's providence in every moment. You can't read a single chapter of it um, without facing the phenomenally perfect timing of God. And it's so beautiful because it reads like an excellent novel, um, but it's not that. It's a moment in history. And just as we look back on our own lives and can see those moments where it's so awesome and like, wow, God really worked, we can look back on the entire Bible and go look at God's faithfulness, look at his providence. Um, so we're going to be looking at that today. It's so just encouraging and faith-building. Um, but chapter four is kind of where we're going to land and spend a bit of time. But before that, I just want to give us a little short summary. If you haven't read the book of Esther, go do it because I'm not going to do it justice here. But it is amazing to watch God's hand um, and his providence in it all. But how it goes is there was a queen named Vashti. And she was deposed because she didn't listen to the king at the time when she was summoned. So her king was King Xerxes, and he called her. He was drunk, and he's with his mates, and he wanted um, her to come so that he could show her off. Um, and she was like, not happening. So a search was made across the whole of Persia for a new queen. So she was essentially fired from her position. The king can't have someone disrespecting his authority like that, nevertheless his wife. Um, so the whole of Persia, there's a search that goes on um, for someone that would be more beautiful than Queen Vashti. They collected approximately 400 young virgins and held what we would call today a beauty pageant. And the girl who won that beauty pageant was a Jew named Hadassah. And how we know her today, or more commonly, is Esther. And throughout the book, God places his people exactly where he needs them at that time. And the first of these placements is Esther as queen of Persia. Now, after she was elected, Mordecai, her cousin, who also raised her because she was an orphan, overheard guards outside the palace plotting to kill the king. So Mordecai tells Esther about this, and the king is saved. And he's so impressed with Mordecai's um, act uh, to stop his assassination that he records it in the book of his reign, which is called the Chronicles. So while he's king, everything um, that happens then is recorded in that book. And then some time after that, Mordecai gets into some big trouble with the villain in the story or the situation. Um, and his name is Haman. He's the king's right-hand man. And what Mordecai does is he doesn't... Uh, the uh, the king ordered that Haman is bowed to at the palace gates, and Mordecai doesn't do that. He just kind of, um, he, he serves the living God, and he's a Jew, so he doesn't bow to him. And when Haman finds out that he did that, and he's a Jew, he's absolutely enraged. So he convinces the king that they should annihilate the entire Jewish population of Persia. 
Um, and it, they do it by the day that they decide, they just roll the dice. And it's right, it's 11 months from now um, that all the Jews will die. It's not in our best interest to have people that are serving this God living in the kingdom. So they issue a decree of this to all 127 provinces that this king rules across. And um, the Jews are obviously in great distress. They've essentially been given the rest of your life. Your lifespan will extend for 11 months and then it's over. And Mordecai is also distressed, but he's got a cousin who is the queen. So he goes to Esther about the, and tells her about this plan and says, Esther, now is the time that you need to reveal your Jewish identity because she's kept it hidden until now. So now's the time you need to reveal it and you need to plead with the king to save you and your people. Um, and then that's where we're going to be in the story. Those are the verses kind of where we're going to see that interaction. But a really cool thing where we can also see his providence is a little bit further on. So nothing's been decided there except that they're going to kill the Jews. No action has been taken by Mordecai or Esther yet. But what happens is Haman runs into Mordecai again. And he is absolutely enraged. Everything just came back, all those emotions of this man who disrespected him. Um, and at the advice of his family and friends, he goes and asks the king if he can impale Mordecai on a big stake. So you disrespected me, I would like to kill you. So on his way to the king, he walks into the court. That same night, the king um, can't sleep. So he asks for the book, um, uh, the chronicles, the book of his reign, to be brought to him and read to him so that he can just relax and have a bit of a sleep. And what do you know? He reads about when Mordecai stopped his assassination. So he wants to reward him. So he's, he says to the people reading to him, he says, um, who's, in the, who's in the inner court? Like, who can we call so that I can discuss? And they say, Haman's here, because Haman's here to ask to kill Mordecai, right? So um, uh, they, he says, okay, call Haman. And he says, Haman, what do I do for someone who I really appreciate, who I really want to reward? How do I honor them? And Haman, being the king's right-hand man, and thinking, like, he's pretty full of himself. So he's like, the king's talking about me. So he says all these phenomenal things about how he would want to be treated, how he would want to be honored. Um, and the king's like, thank you so much. Can you please go do that all for Mordecai? So it didn't work out super well for him, but it's just another moment. It's not what we're looking at right now, but it's amazing to see God's providence. What do you know that the night he wants to kill Mordecai, the king says, how do I honor Mordecai and saves his life? But if you have your Bible with me, we're going to be looking more at chapter 4 today. So chapter 4, verse 9 to 17 is what we're going to be reading. This is the exchange between Esther and Mordecai of the conversation of, okay, how are we going to save the Jews? They're in trouble. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther that Mordecai had, what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends his golden scepter to spare their lives. But 30 days have passed, Mordecai. The king hasn't summoned me for a month. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. 
And who knows, who knows, Esther, but that you have been called to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. I will risk my life, essentially. And if I perish, I perish. And if I die, I die. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So we can see in this scripture, this exchange, that through, and throughout the rest of Esther as well, that God is completely in control. He can do whatever he wants. What does Mordecai say? He says he wants to use Esther, but Mordecai has faith. He says, even if you don't do this, deliverance and relief will come for the Jews. God is sovereign. And he realizes that when Mordecai says, she realizes that when Mordecai says, well, perhaps, Esther, perhaps you are in this position for a time such as this. Maybe this is why God made you queen. And it seems obvious to us now, um, but she didn't know the whole plan of her life. So Esther decides to be faithful. And there are a number of things we can learn through watching her act in faith with the knowledge of God's providence. And I was thinking about the word um, providence and not really quite understanding it and seeing God's sovereignty in the whole book as we see he's in control. Um, and I read something from John Piper where he ascribes a meaning to the word sovereignty and providence, which I think will be helpful for this as we unpack what we can learn from Esther. So sovereignty is God's right and power to do whatever he wants. He's completely in control. He's king. He's the creator. He's done it all. He can do whatever he wants. Providence is sovereignty in the service of wise and good purposes. So he can do whatever he wants, but he chooses to use it for good and wise purposes. What a phenomenal God. So the first thing we learn from Esther is she chooses to be faithful even though she has it really, really tough. She chooses to trust God's providence instead of reveling in bitterness. She understood that providence and pleasure do not go hand in hand. But we like the idea that providence and pleasure go hand in hand, right? We like the sort of his blessing and his grace to mean we're going to live a really easy life. Like when God's blessing me, that's when it's going to be all chilled and lovely and just like we're on holiday. Um, but in fact, even the way we read this book is like that. We see a glamorous story of this awesome uh, this, this awesome story of Esther, and we read about how God handpicked a beautiful Jewish virgin, and she got to marry a king. And then because of this prestigious position God placed her in, he used her to save all the Jews in Persia, and they lived happily ever after. But it's not actually how it goes. It goes more like this. There once was a young, beautiful Jewish girl devoted to her faith and living amongst her people. Perhaps maybe with the hope of one day meeting a lovely Jewish boy and them getting married and living and growing in faith together, glorifying the name of God. But one day, before anything like this could happen, 
the king's officials come to take her away without any say in the matter, along with 400 other women. And in this bond of sexual slavery, she spent a year in preparation on a special diet and receiving beauty treatments until the day finally came where the king would choose one of the virgins from the harem, and he chose her. And for the rest of her life, she would see her husband only when she was summoned for his sexual pleasure. That doesn't sound particularly glamorous to me. This is a really hard truth that God cared more about using Esther for his purpose than say, um, for saving the Jews than he did about giving her an easy life. And I wonder how often we find ourselves saying, Lord, where are you? Where are you? I'm really struggling to find a job. My working environment is horrendous. My boss is horrible. My health is absolutely shot. I have so many family issues. I'm dying in my sin. But God has not forgotten Esther. She by no means has an easy life, but he hasn't forgotten her. And just like he has not forgotten her, he has not forgotten you. But he most certainly didn't promise us an easy life. A deeply satisfying one filled with joy, but not an easy one. And the second thing that we learn from Esther and her actions is she chooses to be faithful, even though it doesn't feel like she's ready or it's the right time. She chooses to trust God's providence over convincing herself that a more appropriate time will come. Esther tells Mordecai, listen, what you're asking me to do is punishable by death. Like, it's that, that's the law. If you go into the king's presence and he didn't summon you, you're going to die. <clears throat> Unless he extends his golden scepter. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a less than ideal situation. The ideal situation would be if she said, Mordecai, listen, um, I get summoned probably every three to four days. Um, so can we just, it's Wednesday now, can we just wait until Friday? And then I don't have to do this whole life-risking thing. I can just ask him while it's legal. Um, so that's one of the arguments. She could have a number of excuses, though. Well, it's only happening in 11 months. The dice was rolled for 11 months where that decree would be um, set. Uh, let's just wait until I'm summoned. Um, or I haven't been queen long enough to take risks like that. Or do you remember, this is a big one, um, why the last queen was deposed? Why was she fired from her position? Because she disrespected the authority of the king. He summoned her and she didn't come. So he's already got issues with that type of thing when Queen Vashti um, was deposed. So I don't think it's going to go down super well. And it makes me wonder how often does our faithfulness actually meet God's providence like Esther did? How faithful are we in the less than ideal situations? Because I think when God calls us to a time such as this, we have many, many excuses about why it's not the right time. Lord, when I have more money, when I have more money, I'll be generous. And when you make me a rich businessman, then I'll start to invest in missions and the work of your kingdom. Lord, when I know more about the Bible, then I will start to use it and I will teach in kidsmen or I will go and check it out just when I know more or even just join in life group like I'm not I don't have enough friends yet to like take that kind of step so I'm just going to stay where I am it's not the right time 
Well, Lord, I don't have enough control over my sin um, yet to be baptized. I haven't got it all sorted out. I'm not perfect yet. I just need to get a few things in order, and then I will be great. Maybe once you've finished your degree, students, then I'll start working for God. Then I'll start doing all the things that you want me to do. But right now, just give me these three or four years, seven if you do some second ups and whatnot, um, but give me this time, and then afterwards, you can use me. Afterwards, there's the right time. Um, maybe once you've found a spouse, Lord, when I have my husband or my wife, I'll do what you want me to do. But right now, I don't want to like ponder what you might be calling me to because I just need to know who I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. <clears throat> and I think we should be very clear about one thing when it comes to this. I don't think that God is calling us all to be kings and queens and save entire nations. So if you shut off because you're thinking that I'm referring to some elite group of Jesus followers who God will solely use to bring his kingdom into fruition, now is the time to start listening again because I'm talking about us average Joes. God tells us that from the beginning of time, he planned our lives. He made us with deep purpose, and it's purpose with eternal impact, not that will just fade away when we die. So if you're waiting to be good enough, you're going to be waiting a really long time. If you're waiting to be perfect, you're going to be waiting until Jesus comes back, okay? Um, and then it's too late. So God's teaching in Esther is that he is in control. He is the doer. You are just not powerful enough to screw it all up. So if you think you're unworthy now, it's true. Just go do it because he's the doer. He's in control. So what are you waiting for? What's this thing that is keeping you um, from being ready what are you waiting to fall into place or have happened before you start living for God and where he's placed you? Where has God placed you right now? Because if you're waiting to be placed, there's a problem. It's so cool because that means that he's given us every single thing we need to do what he's calling us to right now. He's not waiting to bestow this blessing and give you this money and teach you this before he starts using you. He's given you every single thing you need right now to do what he's calling you to right now. I mean, he spoke through a donkey. I don't think he's looking for the most eloquent person. Up until yesterday, I was, um, <laughs> I was saying, so I'm now speaking in public, but uh, <clears throat> I was saying sovereignty instead of sovereignty. And Paul was like, that's not actually how you say the word. <laughs> and I only speak one language. So clearly God's not looking for us to be amazing. He does it all. The next thing we can learn from Esther is she chooses to be faithful even though she doesn't know the whole plan. She chooses to trust God's providence instead of wonder about every detail of how it's going to work out. She chooses his providence over planning. But maybe you're not a big planner. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. Maybe you don't need to consider this stuff or you think you don't need to because it's just not your, you just go with the flow and this isn't really for you. Maybe you're thinking, listen, Sarah, I get that there's a plan and a purpose for, that is made for my life. Like I understand it's in the Bible, but it's not a massive, ground-shaking, famous one. Um, 
So it's not all that important for me to be obedient or do this dramatic faithful steward nonsense that you're talking about. And I want to say with all the love in the world that you're wrong because this obedience, this faithfulness, no matter how small you think your task is, this stewardship is the most satisfying, joyful, most exciting way you can live your life because it's the way you were designed to live. And for the big dreamers, the big planners, I love to plan. I can like dream all day about how I'm going to save the world. So those of you who have great plans, I want to be so bold as to ask you to start dreaming small, to start planning small. Because if you're anything like me, you know how you're going to save the world, you have the perfect plan, but you actually don't really understand the problems, and you think you're clever, but you're actually not. So that's the first step of obedience. The one that isn't glamorous or groundbreaking. The one that doesn't involve you telling people about the inspiring way you'll change the world. But the one that actually requires you to do something, to take that small step. If Jesus came tomorrow, could we honestly say, Lord, I've been faithful, as faithful as I possibly could with my time, my money, my gifts, my relationships? Because the thing is, when Jesus comes, he's not going to be saying, um, listen, Simon, or Josh, or Jordan, or Meg, or Danny. <laughs> he's not going to say, you showed me your life goal sheet, all these plans that you had, and um, you're really going to miss the deadline on them. Like, I'm so glad you planned them out, but you're going to miss the deadline. You didn't get it all done. Because he doesn't care about how much money you make or how many holy achievements you've ticked off your list. He cares about if you used what he gave you faithfully. He cares about if you met his providence with faithfulness. He can achieve whatever he wants to, through whoever he wants to, whenever he wants. So stop worrying about doing God's job for him and start worrying about whether you are meeting God's providence with faithfulness. So start, not when you have a 10 million rand investment for your clever plan. Start with what you have right now. So if your deep desire is to bring a thousand people to Jesus, to be an internationally known evangelist, start with implementing, uh, sorry, start with one. Start with evangelizing to one person. If you are a teacher and your dream is to change the way that we do education, start implementing a strategy in your own classroom. Or better, start an extra lessons group where you have free reign on the methods you use. If your dream is to empower a specific group of people who have received zero privilege in our society, then start with one because they have a lot, and better just learn from them because they have a lot more to offer you in a wholesome worldview than you do to them. And the thing is, if we don't start, if we don't take those steps of faithfulness in trust of God's providence, we never do anything. A, a small thing that comes to mind is, um, is prayer. I mean, I think of prayer, I think of Prisca, because she prays so beautifully. It's so clear, her relationship with Jesus. And I really don't think she was a little girl and was like, I'm, I'm going to be great at prayer. I think she actually had to do it. And I think a lot of the things in life where we're like scared because we don't know if we'll be good at that, we don't learn what we're good at by not doing anything. 
It's not just like this, out, uh, this revelation that we have um, where we suddenly know, but we learn by taking steps of faithfulness and trusting God's providence. He's given us everything we need to do what he is calling us to do right now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are completely in control. Thank you, Lord, that when we are faithful, when we are seeking you, there's nothing that we can do to mess it up. There's nothing we can do to mess up your plan. Thank you, Lord, that living for you in faithfulness, trusting your providence, is the deeply satisfying privilege. Please forgive us, Father, where we've counted hardships as your absence in our lives and show us what um, you want us to do with what's in our hands. Lord, show us what you're calling us to. Show us the, the first step that you want us to take, Lord, in living faithfully for your name, no matter how small. All the glory to your name, Lord. Amen.